Welcome to Northgate Christian Fellowship's weekly message series. And now, here is Senior Pastor Ken Jensen. So I thought I'd start this morning, um, starting this whole new series, with a little um, unscientific, kind of informal poll. Um, But just by a show of hands this morning, how many here would say, I've had some difficulty sleeping? Ah, okay, that, that encourages me because I was afraid no one would be able to relate to this whole series that we're talking about. Um, we are beginning a new series this week. We're calling it Insomnia, What Keeps You Awake at Night. And we're going to be looking at a lot of the different um, factors, a lot of the stressors, the things that, that cause us to lose sleep. And, um, and maybe some of you, maybe it's not a problem with sleeping. It's, it's the waking hours that got you going, okay? Um, but the truth is we live in a very restless world. And we are overstressed, we are overcommitted, we are overwhelmed sometimes by life. And it starts at a very young age. Um, I can remember all the way back to, to, you know, back to school, high school, middle school. And one of my greatest fears, one of my greatest fears was oral reports. I know, it's hard to believe, but that was the thing. It's like the night before an oral report, I was just like, oh, anxiety ridden, you know. I got over that. Um, but as a student, that was a biggie for me. Um, when we got married and, and starting out in life, it was just taking responsibility now as a, as a husband and, and trying to buy our first home. And, you know, you sign those papers and you see at the end of the 30-year what you actually paid for that house. And you go, I don't have that kind of money. You know, that kind of stuff, it just, it just gets you going. Uh, 20 years ago, when we moved to Benicia to start this church, I remember very vividly nights just wondering, will anybody ever come? You know, well, is this really going to happen? What in the world am I doing here? And of course, over the years, it changes different things, different circumstances, different situations, but the anxiety and the fears and the worries continue. These days, it's budgets, it's staffing, it's ministries, it's planning. And I know for myself, some of the darkest moments were many, many sleepless nights for me. And I was doing some research this week in anticipation of this series. 55% of the adult population in America suffers some form of anxiety. Over half of us. And one of the greatest stressors is anxiety disorders. 20% of the adult population in America suffers some form of an anxiety disorder. And, and, and it's a lot of different things that cause that. It might be a family crisis. It might be a serious illness. It might be a loss of a job. It might be your finances. It might be that you're facing a major life decision. Those are all things we're going to be talking about in this series. Um, but what I wanted to start with this morning is just that, that underlying anxiety those feelings of dread and worry and fear and uncertainty that, uh, that we so often experience. And, and let me just, at the beginning of all this, differentiate between, um, between mental illness, which, is, which is, a, is a chemical imbalance in the brain. That is not what we're going to be talking about this morning. There is nothing wrong with taking medication. And, and I, want to just, I don't want to put guilt on people this morning. That is not a lack of faith. If there is a chemical imbalance, if there is a need, then that, that's a medical issue and it needs to be addressed medically. What I'm going to talk about, that's kind of a, that's a hardware issue, okay? This series is going to be talking about a software issue, okay? It's our souls, it's our spirit, it's what goes on inside of us. And so we're going to be talking about a lot of those. This morning, beginning with this whole anxiety, idea of anxiety. And, and really where that all comes from mostly is fear of the future. That, that's really what anxiety is about. It's that uncertainty, that fear of the future. What's going to happen next? How am I going to make it through tomorrow? And uh, you might remember, um, you saw the movie Back to the Future. Remember that movie? Okay, Michael J. Fox plays a character, Marty McFly. 
And uh, he ends up in, uh, in a DeLorean time machine, ends up back in 1955, um, just before the day that his parents met and, and got together at this um, Enchantment Under the Sea, I think was the name of the dance or whatever it was. And the trouble was that, that he kind of got stuck right there in the middle of 1955 and, and he got in between his parents. And so um, he kind of disturbed their relationship and almost kept it from happening. And the way that he knew this is he had a picture in his wallet of himself and his brother and sister. And, and he knew that his future was in doubt because the picture started to fade. Remember that? First, his older brother just kind of starts to fade out of the picture, you know? And, and, and his whole thing is he's got to get them together at this dance because that's where they had their first dance, their first kiss. And if they don't meet, if they don't get together, his whole future, his whole existence is going to come to an end. And so the whole movie he spent trying to get these two together because he sees his picture is fading. And maybe that kind of described you. Maybe you had a picture of your future. And it's not turning out like you thought it was. Or, or it looked like everything was developing and now it's fading away. And there's this fear of the future because the picture that you had in mind is not coming out that way. And you're wondering what's next. And the worry and the anxiety that comes with that. Jesus spoke to that. In Matthew chapter 6, in the middle of his sermon on the mount, he said these words, beginning in verse 25. I tell you, do not worry about your life. What you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food? And the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns. And yet... Your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not dressed like one of these. That is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow was thrown into the fire. Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. I probably most of us in this room are familiar with that passage. You've read those words uh, maybe more than once. And, and I know in the back of our minds, we're all kind of thinking, well, that's all well and good, sure, but. But you don't know my situation. I mean, it's real easy 2,000 years ago to talk to people about food and clothing because, you know, but, but today, that, is, that, is that even relevant today? Does that really mean anything today? I mean, did Jesus really, did he really, really mean that? Is that really, really possible? Or, or is he just blowing smoke, you know? What does that have to do with me and, and my life and, and where I'm at right here, right now in the middle of all that's going on? I believe those words are relevant to this very day. And I think Jesus gave us some real insight into how to cope with, not just cope with, but how to deal with and overcome your worries and your fears and your anxieties. And there's some very key concepts here that I think if we can get these, we'll go a long way to helping you get rid of the fears and start living better in faith. And I think one of the first things is just simply developing a proper life perspective. Just getting a better handle on life, what really matters. Because worry is based on perception. 
And so one of the first things you got to do is determine what really matters. That's what Jesus says. Do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Now, what's interesting to me in this thing is that Jesus doesn't pick luxuries as examples. He picks real needs. He doesn't say, like, isn't life more than that second car? Isn't life more than that jet ski? He talks about real life needs. We need food. We need clothing. And yet he uses those very needs as examples. He says, isn't life more than food and clothing? And I say to myself as I read that, well, not much. Not much more. Because we need those things to live. And he's not saying they're not important. What he's saying is life is more than just existence. Life is more than just working today so you can eat enough so you can live another day to work another day to earn enough so you can eat that day to work for another day and on and on and on and just existing that way. Real interesting is I've been doing some of the study. One of the things that they found in studies that those who are habitual worriers, one thing they found, one characteristic that's very common in, in people who worry is they have high capacity imaginations. They actually tend to be quite bright people, intelligent people with very, very vivid imaginations. The problem is that they tend to have imaginations that go towards the negative. Creative, bright, but in their imaginations that are so vivid, they always go towards the negative. What's the worst that could happen? And that's what they imagine happening. And it's the what-ifs of life become paralyzing to them so much so that they can't even live their life, that the anxiety of the future keeps them from living today. And that's the thing that Jesus is talking about here. He says, all of your worries, all of your pursuits, all of those things, they have you so paralyzed in just existing that you are missing life. And life is more than just existence. It is very, very big, much bigger than that. Now, he's not saying don't plan for the future. He's not saying just live irresponsibly and let other people bail you out. That's not what he's saying. But what he is saying is get some perspective. Get some perspective. Life is more than this. Don't become so preoccupied with just getting that you miss out on what life has to give. The word worry, often used in the New Testament, the Greek word is merimnal, which is actually a compound word, which you're all going to forget the minute you walk out these doors, so it doesn't really matter anyway. But the two words have to do with the first part of the word has to do with this idea of being distracted of being pulled in different directions. The second half of the word, nous, is where we get our word knowledge. It has to do with the mind. And so literally, worry is to be in two minds, is to be pulled in different directions, to be distracted by all these different thoughts. And isn't that what anxiety is? Isn't that what worry is? You can't focus and concentrate on any one thing because you've got all kinds of different things going on in your mind. What if, what if, what if, what if, what if? And that's a beautiful description of what worry is. It's being distracted and being pulled in so many different directions that you don't even see what's happening right in front of you. Determine what really matters. That'll help you focus. Life is more than just food and clothing. And then the second thing is with that is to distinguish between what is in your control and what is beyond your control. This is all part of perspective. What really matters? And then what can I really do anything about? Jesus put it this way. Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? And it's a rhetorical question because the answer to it is nobody. 
No amount of worry is going to give you one more hour of life. In fact, in fact, medical evidence is it actually shortens your life. He says there are some things that are absolutely out of your control and you're trying to control things that are out of your control. That's why you are worrying. And this is beyond your control. Anxiety, that's exactly what anxiety is. It's, it's this, this fear and this dread about the unknown. It's what we have no control over, what we know nothing about, what we can't do anything about. And that's what we're, worry and fear and anxiety are all about. And, and the thing is to be able to distinguish what is in my control and what is beyond my control. And I take care of the things that are in my control and I focus on that. But the things that are out of my control, I got to let go of. One of the uh, things that we do every year, our staff and board of council has a, um, a retreat. And it's usually a two-day retreat. And historically, it goes all the way back since the very first year that we did this. Um, we kind of got this little tradition that we do on, on the first night of our retreat. We go bowling together. And we have kind of this little competition between the board and the staff. Sadly, the staff has not been holding up very well the last couple of years. But I don't know if you've ever watched people bowl. Okay? And it's really interesting to watch people who like bowl once a year. Um, but it, it's very interesting because people, when they're bowling, once they let go of the ball, I don't know if you've noticed this, they still lean, you know, or twist or, or tippy-toe kind of stuff, you know? And, and all their actions behind that line are having no effect whatsoever on the ball. The ball is going down, the, and it's going where it went. Wherever you let it roll to, that's where it's going to go, and no amount of body language is going to change that. It's just, that's where it's going to happen. And he says, that's a lot of the way you live your life. You try and do all these contortions, twists, and turns, thinking it's going to make a difference, and it doesn't. The ball's rolling. It's out of your hands now. And one of the key things in developing a proper perspective is you've got to determine what matters, and then you've got to distinguish between what you can and what you cannot control. And what you cannot control, you've got to let go. And then you focus on what you can do today. Verse 34, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. He's saying, it's out of your control. Why would you borrow tomorrow's troubles and add them to the pile you already got today? And you can't do anything about that stuff anyway. Just focus on what you can do today. Develop a proper life perspective. Get a grip on stuff. Then the second part is it then, okay, now that you know that some things that are out of control, then put those things and trust fully in God's goodness. Let go of them, but don't just let them go. Put them in God's hands because God knows and he cares about your need. Look at what Jesus said. He goes on, look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father loves them and feeds them. See the lilies of the field, how they grow. They do not labor or spin. He said, God takes care of his creation. And in fact, you find this throughout Scripture. God does not stand far off, aloof, and unconcerned about what's going on in this world. He is intimately involved in creation. Say, well, the birds, you know, they find their worms and they do. No, God feeds them. That's what Jesus is saying. He is intimately involved. He is active in clothing and feeding and growing. He's not far off. He is with you right here, right now, in the middle of what you are facing in life. And there is nothing in your life that goes unnoticed by Him. Whatever you are facing, whatever you are facing, whatever you need, He says, your heavenly Father knows that you need them. He's with you. It's interesting 
Now, I don't know if you know this, but it would really relate to Jesus' day. The Hebrew day does not begin at sunrise. The Hebrew day begins at sunset. That's, the Sabbath begins Friday evening at sunset, and it ends at Friday evening on Saturday. I'm, excuse me, in the evening on Saturday at sunset. That, that's, that's the Hebrew day. That's the perspective. And Eugene Peterson writes about this. He says, it's very, very interesting. There's almost this sense at which when I go to sleep, God goes to work. That the day begins when my day ends, God's day begins. And you read that, by the way, in the, in the creation story. There was evening and there was morning the first day. That's how it's described. There is this concept that God is always at work. And so I can rest in that. that, that was a, when, I, when I got that and understood that, that was a revelation to me. Because then my prayer became at night, in the sleepless nights. God, I am so glad that I'm not in control. I am so glad that this is out of my hands and it's in yours. And I can go to sleep and I can actually rest now because I've turned it over to you. This is now yours. And I'm going to rest. And that simple prayer began to change just how I started looking at my life. Other ways that you can do this, I have found praying through the Psalms. The Psalms are great for this. Here's, I'll just give you a few suggestions. Psalm 46, you can look these up on your own. Just a portion of Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea. Psalm 42. Why are you so downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise Him, my Savior and my God. By day the Lord directs His love, and at night His song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. Isn't that good? You can go to sleep on that. Psalm 30. Sing praises of the Lord. You His faithful people, praise His holy name. For His anger lasts but only a moment. His favor lasts a lifetime. Weeping may remain for a night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. Psalm 63. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night because you are my help. I sing in the shadow of your wings. And then my personal favorite, Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. Those going to become prayers at night of surrender. God, I am not in control. I can do nothing about this. I'm putting this in your hands. Because he knows and he cares about your needs. And not only that, you are of infinite value to him. Notice what Jesus says. Are you not much more valuable than they? Will he not much more clothe you, oh, you of little faith? You might circle those words much more. Because what he's saying is, if this is how God cares for this part of his creation... You are much more valuable than that. You are of infinite worth that you were meant to live in the love and the care of God. That is God's plan A 
From the beginning, God's design was that we would live in a vital, nurturing, life-giving relationship of trust in Him. That is how we were created. But we have settled for plan B. Plan B is I cope, I survive, I succeed on my own without God. And when you choose plan B, what comes along with it is worry, fear, insecurity, anxiety, uncertainty, because you don't have that control. And that is not how you were meant to live. From the beginning, you were designed to live in a relationship with Him. And that's what Jesus was doing on the cross, was restoring that relationship. Then we started doing it our own way. And we insist on making it our own way. And sometimes just out of ignorance, and sometimes shaking our puny little fists and rebellion to God, but we are like spoiled children saying, I'm going to do it my way, my way, my way. And that's what gets us into the mess that we're in. And if you ever doubt the love and care of God, look at the cross. Look at the cross. Paul put it this way to the Roman church. God did not spare his own son. He gave him up for us all. Then won't he also freely give us everything else? He said, this is the extent of God's love to us, that Christ gave himself, that God gave his son to die on a cross so that we could be restored in this relationship. Why would God do that just to play games with your life? If he loves you that much, if he did it that far, if he extended his grace to you that much, why won't he take care of all the other stuff too? Trust him. He is a good and gracious and loving and caring God. And you can trust Him with your life. Trust in His goodness. Put your life in His hands. Let go of the controls. Get that proper perspective. Learn to trust in His goodness. And then the third part that Jesus talks about is then pursue what matters most. Once you get it figured out, like what really matters in life, then pursue that and give the rest to God. Just pursue with your life what matters most. He put it this way. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. well. The secret is not in trying harder not to worry. The secret, the secret is in pursuing the right things. And that needs some explanation because... Kingdom and righteousness, those are terms that we're all not that familiar with. Oh, we know the words, but we don't know what they mean. Because a king, being a king, that has to do with being in absolute control and authority. It's not like a president. It's not, it's not a figurehead king or queen like we have these days. It's not a president that if you don't like, well, you just put up with for four years. And, and, and if you don't like him and he gets eight years, oh, well, but at least the eight years, you know he's gone. So you just wait him out, you know. That's not a king. A king is a king for life, and what he says goes. You don't get to elect him. You don't get to choose which of his rules you obey. The king is a king. Ultimate soul authority. And to make Jesus king of my life is to say yes to him every day of my life. It's to say, you are in control, and I am not, and I will obey what you say, though I don't understand it, because I know you know what's best. And righteousness, it's another word that comes, I think it stirs up all kinds of images in our mind. It simply means living rightly. Living with rightness. And what this looks like for us, to make God my king is to resign as the ultimate authority of my life. It's to say yes to him every day and accept each day as a gift, whatever comes my way. 
and to trust that if my plans don't work out the way that I wanted in the time that I wanted, it's only because God knows better and he has what is better for me. So I will trust him even though it doesn't make sense and I may not see the results of this for a long time. It's resigning as master of my life. And to live rightly, Jesus described that in the whole Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 6, and 7, read it. Here's some of the things that he talks about. To live rightly in relationship with God and rightly in relationship to other people. It's keeping my relationships right and pure. It's being true to your word and faithful in your commitments. It's forgiving instead of retaliating. It's accepting instead of judging. It's loving your enemies. It's helping the needy. It's living rightly. In short, it is concentrating on who I am becoming and not on what I am accomplishing or not accomplishing. Because my character is of far more worth than my comfort. And when I resign as master of my life and I live rightly to him, that's what I am doing. I am concentrating on who I am becoming in the midst of the circumstances. Because like I said at the beginning, circumstances and situations change all the time. And we just transfer our worry and our concern and anxiety from one circumstance to another. And you will never come to the end of circumstances and situations to worry about. So concentrate on who you become, not on what you accumulate. And I know some people are saying, well, that's all well and good. But how does that help me now? Because you don't know what I'm going through. You don't know what I'm facing. You don't know the decisions I got to make this week. You don't know the situation at my job. You don't know my financial picture. You don't know. How does that help me? Well, that's where Jesus gave us the opportunity to let go. It's called prayer. And prayer is not my trying to twist God's arm into getting what I want out of him. It's learning to see that he knows what's best and yielding my rights to him. That's what prayer is all about. Now, we are free to ask you. In fact, when the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught us to pray. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. He's given us this prayer, but prayer is the, the opportunity to acknowledge God's power and authority and to surrender control. Paul wrote about it this way to the Philippian church. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. He says, go ahead and ask. That's okay. Go ahead and ask. But with your asking, understand ultimate veto power goes to God. Ask for his help, but surrender to his, his wisdom. Ask for his strength, but surrender to his provision. It's acknowledging his authority and learning to let go. Because the ultimate goal, the ultimate goal of life, what life is really all about is becoming rich toward God. That's what Jesus said. John Orberg describes in his book, one of my favorite authors by one of my favorite books, um, when the game is over, it all goes back in the box, which is just a really, really good way to live life. But he writes about it this way. The object of the game. The object of life, according to Jesus, is breathtakingly simple. Be rich toward God. Don't spend your life playing as master of the board. It's a sucker's game. You cannot beat the house. But you can be rich toward God. Your life with God's help can be a source of pleasure to the God of the universe. You can make God smile. 
Being rich toward God means growing a soul that is increasingly healthy and good. Being rich toward God means loving and enjoying the people around you. Being rich toward God means learning about your gifts and your passions and doing good work to help improve the world. Being rich toward God means becoming generous with your stuff. Being rich toward God means making that which is temporary become a servant of that which is eternal. Jesus expressed it in two great commandments, each built around a single word, love. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, he said. Love your neighbor as yourself. Everything else is commentary. No one can do this and be poor in God's eyes. No one can fail to do this and be rich in God's eyes. Being rich toward God begins with giving God that which he desires most of all. And what he desires most from you is you, your heart and devotion. Just as God can give us many gifts, but the best gift is himself, so we can offer God our resources and acts of service, but the gift he desires most is us. The lonely soul is poor. The with God soul is rich. The reason God made you is because he wants to be with you. And we don't have to wait. It's as if, as if each day God is saying, I'd like to spend this day with you. Do you bow your heads with me? Thank you for listening to this week's message. We trust that you'll join us again soon for another uplifting message from Northgate Christian Fellowship located in Venetia, California. Oh,